So did you listen to it? I did. I did. And I really liked it, actually. I, I was surprised. <laughs> no, no, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was very, very listenable um, and quotable. I don't know how to do, uh, I don't know how much of this we're going to use, Dan, if, if not. Right. Let me set the scene then. So, well, welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability, the built environment and carbon zero goals. Zero carbon goals. Stop it. Yeah, sorry. Anyway, right. So today we're recording an introduction together rather than me hastily recording one at night just before we publish because we want to introduce a new series. We have a new parallel show that we are producing with Lloyd Alter, who regular listeners will obviously be familiar with. We are taking a back seat. We are fostering a bit of cross-pollination between the Zero Ambitions platform and Passive House Plus, uh, the the official print publication of the show. What's the unofficial print publication of the show, by the way? I can only think of seedy, appalling things to say. (laughs) You know, don't answer that, Dan. Uh, Seedy in that sort of lascivious way and like politically as well. Yeah, we'll avoid that. Um, But yeah, we've got a new show that's going to be running alongside the usual weekly episode format where we sit around and ramble with someone far more qualified than we are. And we have, well, this was Lloyd's pitch. It was originally conceived as a an idea which would take the best of Passive House Plus and translate it for a North American audience. Is that right, Lloyd? That's pretty much it. I've been reading Passive House Plus magazine for a number of years, and I come to the UK fairly often, or I at least did before the pandemic because my sister lives there. And I've always been surprised at the things I learned from Passive House Plus, that things are often done so differently in the UK and in Ireland. And I thought that this would actually be really interesting for the North American audience that may not realize how different things are. When it comes to embodied carbon, for instance, they are way, way ahead of everyone in North America, given the level of understanding. If you looked at the Financial Times this weekend, there was a very, very long article about the battle to stop the demolition of the Marks and Spencer's store in Oxford Street in London. That was one of the most thorough and well-written articles about embodied carbon that I've seen anywhere. In North America, they'd have to spend half the time explaining what it actually is. So, There are things like that all the time. And there's a big show at the Victoria and Albert that just opened about, again, the use of straw, wood, and stone in buildings that are chosen because they're low embodied carbon. But if you went to North America and talked to people about building out of stone and straw, they mostly think you're nuts. So I thought that this was a real opportunity to expose North Americans to some of the real forward thinking stuff that's happening. And also, as you'll hear in this first session, some of the appalling things that are happening in the UK and in Ireland, where, for instance, this past winter, people had to decide whether they were going to heat or they were going to eat because of the energy crisis there. And of course, right now we have a heat crisis. So I thought there was meat for a good discussion about this stuff. Well, I, I thank you so much, Lloyd. Um, I'm just I'm thrilled that you see enough value in the magazine to to want to use it as a springboard for these kinds of conversations. 
Yeah, I I listen. I, I don't want to do too much of this intertextuality thing where it's one thing for you to be talking about what you read in the magazine, but for me to be talking to you about listening to you talking about the magazine uh, is, is kind of an, one level a bit too much for me, but I found it a really fascinating conversation. So I thought you were um, you're excellent and I, and I can't wait to hear the next one, frankly. I think what's interesting about the way this format's going to, or rather the the intent in addition of this this revision to the format is to give something that's a bit shorter and a bit more focused. So in theory, each episode is going to be built around a particular article from the magazine or a series of articles, as was the case with the first episode. It's going to be a bit punchier in that regard. Uh, it's an opportunity to highlight that Passive House Plus magazine is a little misleadingly titled. It's not just sure. about Passive House there's an awful lot more of the plus that needs to be elevated, which, I mean, again, correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, but it's a lot about the retrofit and the broader construction landscape. Well, yeah. When we renamed the magazine, when we rebranded as Passive S Plus, I chose that name because you're trying to find two or three words to 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 come to give a title of a magazine. And we were very much of the view that not all approaches to sustainable building were necessarily equal. And while Passive House well, well, not it's not necessarily the case that everybody should build to the passive house standard or or retrofit. It's probably even harder in that case. But there are principles uh, that passive house encompasses, which I think sum up an awful lot of what we need to try to do on all projects. Um, so that that's kind of where we were going with that. But I think um, I'm hoping that one thing that comes out of this is that it might encourage some of our listeners to go back to things like Kate to Selling Courts, uh, that double header piece that she did for us on uh, on the winter just gone and the energy crisis. I worked quite closely with Kate. We, we, she she specializes in long form journalism. I ask her to do 1500 words and she comes back with 4000, you know, um, <laughs> but um but that's because uh, the, you you pay by the word, is that it? <laughs> it's, uh, uh, yes, but we usually end up having to come up with some sort of an agreement. <laughs> and, um, but because, of course, we can't necessarily use everything that uh, that that she wants to put in as well. So, uh, but the point is, she comes. She she is so thorough and so considered in her approach. And I was really interested in that piece. Um, in uh, I commissioned her because. Uh, we could see a kind of a car crash that was about to happen in slow motion, you know, um, given where energy prices were and given where a su substantial chunk of population of the UK and Ireland are uh, in terms of their disposable income um, and the quality of the housing stock. When you add those kinds of conditions together, you're very fearful of of what might come out of it. So I'm just delighted, Lloyd, that you picked up on that as well. Um and, and that you saw some maybe some resonance of that for for um people on the other side of the Atlantic. Yes, because we have the same many of the same issues, but we don't talk about them because, for instance, in Canada, most of those issues are with the indigenous population, as I mentioned in that, who live in substandard housing and are packed too many people in and get ridiculous humidity levels in cold, cold climates. And you can imagine what happens. So it's all relevant and it all transfers. And I just got hired last week to for a major gig, which is consulting to our National Trust for Historic Preservation about how to reset heritage and the heritage movement. And one of the things that's key that is almost driving my whole presentation to the National Trust is 
the article by Toby Cambray that I read in Passive House Plus. That was the heat pumpification or insulation that you suddenly start weighing, hey, in an all-electric world, do we need to be doing these deep energy retrofits? And the answer is no. And then I find another guy in London who I think that you should get in the magazine, Kelly Alvarez-Doran, a Canadian teaching in London, who said, hey, look, if you're in an all-electric world, I have this triple-glazed window you want me to put in instead of a double-glazed window. In fact, it'll take 142 years to outweigh the carbon in that triple-glazed window. It, there's no point in doing it when you're measuring carbon instead of energy. Until so, they start making the triple glazing with with electricity with with green electricity as well. Yes. So this is the whole thing. I mean, the Toby the Toby Cambray article uh, to me was mind blowing, and has completely switched my attitudes in terms of what we say about historic preservation of buildings now. Because everyone used to say, "Oh, we have to take that down. It's not energy efficient." Now we can say, "Yes, it's carbon efficient." Hmm. And uh, so, you know, that's why I'm hoping to speak that he'll be someone that we speak to soon for this podcast. And he'll be a great guest and a yeah, uh, brilliant mind on them. All right. Yeah. So rather than divulge any more of what's going to be happening in the future, we can just say you will receive it in the Zero Ambitions podcast feed. It will be a little sporadic at first. We're not going to be regular. It will be led by Lloyd. I'll be around more as production and Jeff will get involved as publisher. It's going to be about half an hour, 40 minutes. We'll try and keep it as tight as we can. Uh, half an hour. I really would like to limit it to half an hour. I'm one of those people with a short attention span, and I like to keep them short, and I like to keep them scripted. All right, then. Well, let's heed our own advice here, Lloyd, and curtail this and get into the episode. One point to note before it plays. Uh, apologies for Kate's coughing. It's an apology on her behalf. She has nothing to apologize for, really. But she was a bit self-conscious about coughing throughout the interview and it's interfering with our production values, which, like, shame on her, serves to highlight that she's not a regular listener. (laughs) So there are a couple of bits where a a voice might go a bit weird, and that's why, because we edited out the coughing. Anyway, thanks for listening. Um, Join ACAN, join the ACB, join the IGBC. Uh, get in touch with us at Zero Ambitions if you want to talk about any of this stuff. We now have our own email addresses. My God. Yeah. Yep. So it's dan at zeroambitions.partners or jeff at zeroambitions.partners or even Alex. He's got the same naming convention. Anything else? Or listen to Sarah's podcast, uh, Accelerate to Zero. That's in the show notes as well. That's good. And Lloyd's Substack. Yes. Upfront Carbon. Just Google Upfront Carbon. Lloyd Alter, Substack, you'll find it. I'll put it in the show notes as well. It might be there automatically. If not, I'll remedy that. All right, well, cheers for this, Lloyd. Enjoy it, and we'll see okay, when you. Do you think this, when do you think this will be out, just out of curiosity? Oh, I'll put it out tonight. Oh. This will be uh, in your feed tomorrow, well, well before you go to bed. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I uh, I love the magazine, and I've often been shocked at how different things are in the UK than they are in North America. The way you build, the way you regulate, 
And you and I've had this conversation before about how bad certain things are, particularly understanding of ventilation and air sealing and things like that. Yeah. So I thought would be this whole series, what would be interesting to do is, God, 40 years ago, Kent, the historian, I think Kenneth Clark used to do a series for National Public Radio in the States where he would be interpreting Britain to Americans. Hmm. And... I'm no Kenneth Clark, but I have this idea that sort of there's so much happening in the UK that nobody sees or understands or hears about. Uh, there's so much in Passive House Plus magazine that nobody reads there because they don't know about it. And I thought that this podcast might be a really interesting bridge mm. to sort of talk about what's happening in the UK. And um I guess in a bit in Ireland and uh, how the scene is different and try to explain it. And I wanted to start with you because of your wonderful series that you did in Passive House Plus. And then you sent me that article that you wrote in, what was it, 2018, about the other side of the story, about it, about the heat. Okay. Yeah. And you know, it turns out that, you know, English houses are shitty in both summer and winter, <laughs> that basically they don't work, or as I titled this thing, not fit for purpose. Yeah. So I guess this was all a preamble. So I'll just start with what I wrote and say, you know, I'm a regular reader of Passive House Plus magazine, published by Jeff Colley in Irish and British editions. And I come to London often, as my sister lives there, and follow the architectural scene closely. Um, I in many ways, find the architectural scene in the UK to be much more sophisticated than in North America. They get the concept of embodied or upfront carbon. There are organizations like Architects Declare and Architects for Climate Action and the Association for Environmental Conscious Building. And I find that that part's pretty sophisticated. But then when I look at the housing, when I read the magazines and see what's done in housing, both old and new, I find it shockingly bad. Like there's a phrase that they use a lot in the UK. We don't hear it much in North America, which is not fit for purpose. And it's a brilliant phrase. And it seems to describe the housing industry. And I, I don't get it. You know, in North America, there's so much advancing progress in, say, prefabrication and new technologies being tried. And uh, one of the biggest and most important green modular companies in the UK, Ilka, is now for sale for a pound. A major developer, Barrett, is knocking down 36 houses because they found that the foundations were rotten. Now, how in any nation with a decent regulatory system where foundations are supposed to be inspected before you actually put the first floor on, do you get to a stage where they've actually built the roofs and almost completed the houses and they have to knock this down. So there's a whole regulatory thing that I simply don't understand. So this uh, winter, Kate DeSellencourt wrote an amazing two-part series called Cold Truths in Passive House Plus magazine and described the problems that many faced while trying to keep warm and leaky houses during the gas crisis. Kate, could you introduce yourself for a moment just as a bit of background? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a journalist. I tend to go in for quite uh, long, lengthy and uh, thoroughly researched articles. So I haven't written all that much, I suppose you could say. <laughs> um, but um, 
my interests have always been kind of quite scientific and technical. I've been an environmental journalist and I've also written about health quite a lot. And I started writing in the uh, construction field about sustainable construction 15 years ago. But I kind of brought with me the previous interests in health and um, sustainability. So I kind of look at construction through through that lens, if you like. And I do a lot of work with the Passive House Trust and also with Jeff at uh, Passive House Plus, amongst various other places. Now, in this article that you published in January, which I guess I suppose would be the start of the crisis, you wrote that vulnerable adults will lose their lives because their homes are cold and damp. But so will babies and young children. A respiratory consultant told the press that he had no doubt that cold homes would cost children's lives this winter, adding that many more will suffer harm to their health and to their life chances, marking them for the rest of their lives. Now, you wrote that in January. Did it end up being as dire as was predicted or were we saved by a more mild winter, which I know it actually was? Well, it wasn't that mild because although we didn't have a massive freeze, there was a lot of pretty cold weather and, and people were really struggling and there definitely were deaths directly related to cold. The kind of detailed analysis, obviously when people die, there's lots of, lots of contributory factors and you need to take a statistical look to say, was it because of cold homes or because of poverty? And certainly for the previous winter, analysis has shown that um, something called sudden unexplained death, I think, in small children and babies um, had a very strong gradient against people's socioeconomic status. So basically people in with low incomes are much more likely to lose their children suddenly and tragically. And this is thought to be associated with poor housing amongst other other stresses on, on the baby's health. Um, we did have an epidemic of, of scarlet fever and streptococcus this past winter, and certainly there was a lot of concern about child deaths related to that. And again, it's an infection, so obviously part of the cause is because you, you get the infection, but also uh, poorly ventilated uh, situations, which is very common in the cold, is likely to increase the infection. And there's certainly not only health crises, but there were financial crises. A lot yeah, of people were pressed yes. to the wall or could be losing their homes simply because they couldn't afford to heat them, that heat or eat situation that you yeah, mentioned. Definitely. And and we know that um, elder people, some did simply die from hypothermia in cold homes. There, can you tell the story, uh, the shocking story of the young child, Awab, how, how do you pronounce his name? Ishak, Awab Ishak, uh, that basically his death was attributed to mold in the home? Well, uh, what happened there, as far as I understand it, is that he was living in a, in a smallish flat with his parents. I think he was the only child in the family. But the flats um, suffered very badly from black mold, and it wasn't the only flat affected in that building. And uh, the parents made repeated complaints. And in fact, that the year that he died, the father had actually hired a solicitor to try and take the landlord to court to try and get it fixed. Wow. Um, but there was a situation which is sadly extremely common or has been extremely common where the landlord really didn't take responsibility 
of the situation in the flat and simply blamed the parents' lifestyle, as they put it, and saying it was because they they cooked with boiling water, which is not exactly an unusual thing to do. And the fact that the flats in this particular building were um, badly affected, you know, a lot, a lot of them, um, whereas in other buildings it's not so bad, clearly points to the um, to the fabric of the building and the services of the building and the maintenance of the building and the attitude of the landlord, which obviously they all have in common in that building. And it's a very, very widespread problem. I mean, um, Awab was, he was so badly affected that he had, I don't know if it was a form of asthma, but basically respiratory crises where he wasn't able to breathe and he was eventually, he, he couldn't breathe and, and uh, this condition killed him. And the inquest, which is like the legal inquiry into what his cause of death was, confirmed that it was caused by the mould in his in his flat. Uh, I mean, there has been a response from the government, which is unusual for uh, this kind of event. But there was such such an outcry, and so many other people were terrified because they're living in flats with mould as well and with small right. children. It's very common, actually, uh, in Canada, in the among the indigenous population, where there's severe overcrowding in the houses and no moisture control, no controlled ventilation, uh, and the walls are just, you know, ice is forming on the walls. So that um, it's it's not just a problem that you have; it's a problem with terrible housing and cooler climates yeah. everywhere. I think there's uh, a lot of similar problems in New Zealand. Again, very poor construction for low-income households and a lot right. of um, asthma and so forth. Meanwhile, what's the temperature right now as we're recording this? I believe you're in the middle of a heat wave. Uh, well, it has been. It's hotter in the southeast. I'm in the I'm in the west of the country and surrounded by trees, so it's a very pleasant 22 ah. or 23. Just uh, from the south coast, we're about 20 degrees today. It's been, we've had thunder and lightning yesterday. I think there have been storms all over. You did have 30 degrees recently, didn't you? As high as I just thought, 30? Yes, I didn't experience oh. that because this country is very, although it's very small, it has a lot of internal oh. variability. So where where I live, it tends never to get very extreme. Okay. Well, I mean, we have had 30 here, but it, the big urban areas, of course, um, well, suffer. A lot worse because of the urban heat island. It doesn't cool down overnight, which is a huge obstruction as well. And bad design, lack of ventilation, lack of uh, cross ventilation that was always standard in houses that's gone out the window, floor to ceiling glazing. In 2018, you wrote that if as expected, climate change makes our summers hotter as the century progresses, overheating and building is likely to become an increasingly serious cause of ill health and even mortality. You quoted Nick Grant, who complains that too many building designers still fail to take summer comfort seriously. Now, you wrote that five years ago, and I don't think anything has changed except more and more people are getting air conditioning that ever had it before. And the government is actually making deals to bring coal plants on to make more electricity to run the air conditioning. A writer, William Salatin, an American writer, wrote almost 15 years ago, air conditioning takes indoor heat and pushes it outdoors. To do that, it uses energy, which increases production of greenhouse gases, which warm the atmosphere. We're cooking our planet to refrigerate the diminishing part that is still habitable. So, you know, the government 
firing up coal to meet the air conditioning yeah. demand is like so obviously a what's the word I'm looking for? Not a vicious circle, but like a feedback loop. It's a feedback it loop. It's uh, sawing off the branch you're sitting on, isn't it, really? Yes. <laughs> so yeah, when I read about this happening in Texas and India, yes, but in the UK, so-called temperate UK, it's shocking. Yeah. Well, I think uh, probably, and I don't know, I haven't looked into this, but I'm guessing that the ma- the majority currently of the cooling demand is in commercial spaces which have been built over the past 40, 50 years with no regard to keeping out solar gain. And it's absolutely the norm to have active cooling in offices and shops through the summer. And yet the government, instead of dealing with this like they did with COVID and telling people to work from home, is now driving people to go back to the office. So they're not really thinking about the whole problem in a holistic way. If anyone was in the office at all, and obviously sometimes people do need to go in the office, it's going to be cooled anyway. So, I mean, that's not that's not the answer. I mean, the answer clearly is to design the buildings, firstly, so they can be cooled naturally overnight. Secondly, so that they don't gain any more than they absolutely have to through glazing and so forth. And then thirdly, if we accept, and I think we do have to accept that even in Britain, some spaces are going to need active cooling to keep them livable, then we have to design a very well insulated and well thought out building, highly airtight, in order to minimise the cooling load that, that we do require. And I think, I mean, that's something that there's a kind of unsung uh, quality of passive house is that not only limits the heating demand, which is still the lion's share of the energy demand for space conditioning in the UK. But obviously, uh, cooling is is becoming more of a thing. And passive house also really limits the cooling demand as well, which means that kind of vicious spiral is at least minimised as far as possible. And you can cool with a heat pump. Um, and obviously, if you've got enough solar, then every day when the sun's shining and it's hot, you've got masses of low-carbon electricity to do the cooling. So it's far better. I mean, we've been using solar as a kind of so-say balance against right. heat demand, which is nutty. But it, you know, it does work to um, the supply cooling demand sustainably. When I was in the UK, I was talking to a couple of people that like, it seems that one of the big problems there is that nobody knows which way it's going, that if the Gulf Stream gets all screwed up because of climate change, you may have a climate like Iceland, you know, where you are really much colder than it is now, which is one reason to build Passive House. But if it also, like you say, gets much hotter, hotter, at least Passive House works both ways if you get the windows right. and robust and that you know, I yes. suppose that's at the heart of resilience isn't it that you don't have to then pile a whole lot of energy in to do either and um, and the fact that it's so airtight it's also very um, valuable against high winds and we certainly it's certainly a windy country here it's all windy everywhere well that brings up another point you raised in the article at the time that was the issue of one architect you were talking to said the rain here is horizontal <laughs> And that you basically have to design the walls to deal with this, which is what a traditional rain screen does. And Mm -hmm. what cavity walls that 
I've never understood the British obsession with building cavity walls out of two wides of masonry. And now people are going and retrofitting them with uh, drilling holes and firing styrofoam yes. beads and trying to fill up that cavity, which just destroys them as rain screens. I yes. mean, it doesn't seem that anyone is dealing with the situation properly and that they're still building buildings that even the new houses have all of these same old problems. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I think there it, there's a way to build a, an insulated cavity now, which, I mean, either you can leave a gap between the insulation and the outer leaf, but you have to really be careful with what you're doing. Or you can do a full fill cavity, but just you know, be very mindful of what your outer leaf is made of and that it's probably ideally it would either be rendered or or some kind of very solid masonry. You've got to know what you're doing and different locations. I mean, I wouldn't do a cavity in the Lake District or on the Welsh coast or in Cornwall, but I think a full-filled cavity in East Anglia, where it hardly rains at all, and it's cold and windy. Um, it's probably fine. I mean, I'm not an expert on that, but as right. I say, you need to be mindful of the local conditions, and that's something that you know the developers and the construction firms aren't very good at. And a developer will have a, you know, a, whatever they call it, an Evesham or a <laughs> or a Norwich, and they'll plunk right. it anywhere. And actually, that's um, whereas Patrick House actually does. You know, works out the sun angle of exactly where you are and the rain and the wind and so forth. So, which you can do if you're not doing a pass house, but you have to you have to decide to do it. Whereas in pass house, you're you're prompted. Well, there's this complicated discussion that's been going on about passive house where there are two ways to sort of calculate it: the peak load way, I think, oh, yeah. and that they've tended to overheat. When people were going with the standard the standard way of designing them, the windows uh -huh. were too yes. big. That... Grabbing all those solar gains and never giving a thought to the cost of the windows, never mind. Yes. <laughs> never mind the comfort cost on a hot day. It's it's a difficult, difficult thing. You know, I did a calculation and I talked to Nick, uh, the engineer, Nick Grant, about this at length, about how big should a window be. And you know, 10 years ago, I was always talking about natural light, natural light, natural light. This is what you want because running light bulbs is obviously expensive. But now with light emitting diodes, I tried <laughs> to put Nick on the spot and say, Aren't we actually better now to make like teensy, teensy windows because we're probably more energy efficient getting our light from light emitted from LEDs than we are from windows? And suddenly it got, no, 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 we need windows just for views wow. and biophilia and connection to the outdoors and, and ventilation. I said, yes, of course. Yes, of course. But it I shouldn't... mean, it's not all about energy, and that's no. where we've gone wrong with ventilation and indoor environmental quality is making it all about energy and just, you know, being terrified of fresh air because it's taking heat away. Yes, they've um, dialed back the ventilation requirements over the years so dramatically. Well, I, I don't know that they've dialed them back so much as they have uh, They have gone for an airtight fabric and they have done calculations which make it look as though you're getting plenty of fresh air. But no one's taken any notice of the fact that natural ventilation is, you know, it's just, it's just what air chooses to come in and go out wherever it feels like it. And I wouldn't right. call that ventilation. So, and that has been 
completely overlooked. There's been some kind of belief in a calculation, a rule of thumb calculation someone did about 40 years ago, and it hasn't really been examined. But of course, with um, uh, heat recovery ventilation, then you don't have to be afraid of the fresh air. Exactly. And there's an epidemiologist doctor in Toronto who wrote a fascinating article when it became known that sort of COVID really is airborne. It's Mm -hmm. not about touching things. And his phrase was that air is the new poop, that basically 150 (laughs) years ago, people started talking about cholera and they learned, you know, we have to deal with poop this way and keep poop away from fresh water. And we engineered and designed systems so that by the turn of the 20th century, people knew how to build houses so that we don't all die from the poop that's getting in our water and that we've never treated air quality as carefully as we have treated water quality and that we now know that air is like poop. It's got to be clean. When you express the air change rate in a in an occupied room as the proportion of each breath you take, which has been breathed before by somebody else in the same room, it, it brings it home, really, doesn't it? Yes. And it's why I carried for the last three years, I carried a CO2, portable CO2 meter around with me. <laughs> and when I was teaching in the class, I'd say, okay, class, if it gets past a thousand, we're out of here. Class is over or we're going outside and standing outside. Now, People, I just don't think, understand air tightness or ventilation. There was an Economist article a few months ago that made me so angry because it basically was titled, How to Fix 30 Million Drafty British Homes, and then never once addressed the question, well, why is it drafty? What is a draft? A draft is essentially air sealing. And blower door tests, you once told me, or confirmed that they're almost never done, whereas in Canada now, they're actually a legal requirement for every house, and that people still don't understand ventilation at all. Because it seems to me that it's not really understood outside of the passive house community at all in the UK, that windows have these things called trickle vents on them, which I'd never heard of, which was actually a slot to bring in uncontrolled fresh air when somehow someone thinks they need it. Their blower door tests don't seem to exist there. The Economist wrote about how to fix 30 million drafty houses and never once mentioned drafts or air sealing. And after COVID and after forest fire smoke, you would think that someone would begin to get the importance of good ventilation and filtering. And yet, Outside of the passive house community, does anyone think or even talk about it? Or is there anything in your codes about it? Um, well, it's certainly not not good enough. I think with regard to the air tightness, I believe now they've just changed it and, and there has to be a, an air tightness test on each building as opposed to just a sample. But in the past, air tightness tests have been very obviously rigged. Somebody did some research and found there was this bizarre kind of spike of results just exactly where you pass, which means um, that they've tested tested a leaky building and gone round taping over plug sockets and skirting boards and stuff until they just got through and then presumably took all the tape off before you know the house was handed over. I don't know that it's got a got a great deal better. But with regard to ventilation, yeah, I mean I it's trickle vents, people really dislike them. For obvious reasons, they let they don't only let in cold air; they let in uh, noise and, and pollution. If you happen to live near a busy road, 
so people disable them. And also the fans that we do have, and some some homes of trickle vents have a continuous fan, some have intermittent ones. But either sort tends to be underpowered and also, again, noisy. And you might have a continuous fan running noisily in a in an ensuite bathroom. And inevitably, people, you know, don't want that noise roaring away all night. So again, they disable them. And interestingly, um, although there's a lot of store set by uh, infiltration as being part of the ventilation system, and that is in the building regs, and uh, and absolutely widespread fear of air tightness from architects who've at least understood that that an airtight building is likely to lose less heat. But then then they think, oh, but it'll be underventilated. Well, of course, it will be underventilated if you haven't got any ventilation. But uh, in fact, the leaks in the building are absolutely no guarantee that you'll actually get air in the places you need it. I mean, you know, classically, you might do an air test on a building and the air is coming in under the uh, under the front door and out through the back of the kitchen cupboard where the pipes come in and avoiding the bedrooms altogether. So it's absolutely no help at all. This is a problem in North America, too, where a friend of mine, an engineer, Alison Bales, just wrote a book, and the whole book is titled A House Has to Breathe, Doesn't It? Because it's a misconception here that a house has to breathe. And he very quickly answers the question, you still should read the book. No, a house does not have to breathe. It has to have (laughs) controlled ventilation. Now, the other thing that I wanted to talk about. Again, I was so shocked about those 36 houses being demolished because they were rotten foundation. And there seems to be, and this is not unusual to the UK, it happens absolutely in Toronto and in the United States, where governments have cut back and cut back and cut back on uh, inspections and monitoring, or actually handed it over to the industry to where buildings are being built that are in danger of leaking, of foundations failing, that there's a lack of competent inspections and supervisions and approvals. And this is something that's just getting worse all the time because of government cutbacks. And I don't want to dwell on it too long, but having read that book, Show Me the Bodies, all about the Grenfell fire, it was very clear that so much of the problems that caused that were greed, incompetence, bad regulation, worse inspections, people passing the buck, people stealing the buck. It was just a shocking, shocking story of incompetence. And then when the whole thing is done, what lessons do they take from it? All the wrong ones. And suddenly single stairs caused the problem, which they didn't, or combustible materials caused the problem, You know, and they go and ban wood when the building was made of plastic. And I just understand that there seems to be a fundamental disconnect between building science and sort of the inspection and supervision and regulation where the people don't know the building science when they're coming and looking at the building. I think that's certainly a lot to do with the the culture of the free market. I mean, it's a political project. The, uh, I mean, it started 15 years ago, 20 years ago with the whole kind of flashing red tape and letting 
industry and commerce kind of run free. And so regulation was reframed as the burden. And so that has all these ridiculous things where they, if you had, if you wanted to introduce a new regulation, you know, however important and valuable a reason, you had to get rid of two other regulations because otherwise it was a terrible burden on industry. And that mindset was definitely behind what happened at Grenfell. In Scotland, for instance, they're going with more building regulation in the sense that they're bringing in a, I think, either passive house or very close to passive house standard for all new construction. But in England, they've just gone backwards, haven't they, on green regulation and rolled everything back? Or are they actually looking at tightening up there as well at all? The next round of regulation is still under discussion. And I think some things will be tightened up, but there'll probably be a less ambition than we might hope. It's supposed to be zero carbon, which no one has ever designed, defined conveniently. But I think what drives the performance gap, the gap between the intention, even when the intention is quite good and the design is not too bad, and what's actually delivered is... I mean, it's a lot to do with the way that value has now been embedded in land and freehold. And actually constructing a building is just an annoying bit of bureaucracy you have to go through to realise your the value of your asset. It's an inconvenience. It's not at the heart of the, uh, of the mission. The mission of the developers is to convert land into money. It's ever been thus. And it's very acute in the UK, partly because, because the... The prices have gone up so high. I mean, this was sort of started in a way by or encouraged by Margaret Thatcher, but house price inflation has been a thing ever since I was a child 65 years ago. And it means that the focus is very much on the numbers and the and the pounds. We've had people buying uh, land assets in London in particular as an investment to hedge against market instability elsewhere in the world. So, And that's just put prices up. Yes. and uh, Safety deposit boxes in the sky, exactly, I called them once. Exactly. Which means that actually worrying about what a building might be like is, is like a triviality and a luxury compared to just getting your hands on that freehold unfortunately. So that's the whole kind of commercial climate in which in which construction operates. If you're um, uh, requiring people to spend more time and more money building something properly, you're in, impairing their margins, even though obviously if everybody's regulated the same way, then it shouldn't hinder competition. And the other thing is, of course, people say, oh, I can't afford to do it because I paid this much for this manky little field, and um, and now now you're making the houses cost more, so so it's not viable to do it nicely. Right. Whereas you know, if they said, well, you're going to have to do it properly from five years' time, and uh, you've overpaid for the land and haven't built on it, more fool you. I mean, it should bring land prices down, and it should be um, fiscally neutral, as I believe the term is, but but you know, we're desperately short term, like probably politics everywhere, but it's certainly in the UK. So, I mean, at heart, a lot of it is a political problem, but there is a kind of building physics literacy in architecture, which is why it's so fantastic. They are finally getting some passive house modules into some of the um, architecture school courses in in the UK at last. So, architecture students have to understand what a kilowatt is and 
And embodied carbon is on the menu in the UK the way it mm -hmm. isn't anywhere else. And you have, again, as I mentioned at the beginning, these wonderful groups like Architects, uh, Architects for Climate Action that are trying to change what they teach in schools. I've been talking to them about implementing some of their programs over where I teach sustainable design in Canada. They're a wonderful organization. The other thing that we have the same problem in North America that you were having, particularly in Toronto, in the 70s and 80s here, we had massive social housing programs that built wonderful housing, the most innovative housing. And people rent them now and they love them. And our problem is that conservative governments killed all the social housing projects. I was shocked to learn that in the UK, that's much, much worse that we even than we have. Not only are you not building very many, but Margaret Thatcher brought in this thing called the right to buy. And I was reading about that wonderful Goldsmith Street project by Mikhail Riches that was Passive House that was a Sterling Prize winner, that the Guardian had articles about how happy the people in it are, that they're healthy, their heating bills are lower, that it just sounded like paradise for all these people who couldn't afford to buy a house and could go here. And now they're being sold under this right to buy thing. And because they're such wonderful houses, of course, they'll be speculatively make a fortune on this. And I was just shocked. How can they do this? It's I mean, it's absolutely crackers, and it's always seemed absolutely crackers. I mean, the the reason was purely political. It was to it was to get people literally invested in you know the the Tory way of doing things by owning their own home. But it was basically a, a, a loss or bribe because the, all the homes were sold at a huge discount. Uh, so it so it was bankrolled by um, by the state, uh, and there's no excuse. You know, it's just purely short sighted. I mean, obviously we had a Labour government after that was brought in, and they didn't roll it back. Right. So I can't see it ever changing. So I have had this long list of questions for you. Just you know, what I questions that come out of me sort of visiting the UK and reading The Guardian and Passive House Plus magazine and everything else that I read. <laughs> and Mike, I want to just sort of turn it over to you and ask, are you optimistic that things are going to get better? Or are you pessimistic that they're going to get worse? Or what are your thoughts about where the country is? And I, I know that's a big question. You don't a have to question. answer it if you can't. It's yes. a huge question. But I was there and I went out to to Hereford and I visited Archetype and I stayed with Nick Grant and I Alan Clark came up to visit and I was so thrilled to get together with everyone and so many smart people with so many good ideas. You know, I would like to do a whole episode just about Alan Clark and Nick Grant and what they did with with archives, with libraries. Yeah, yeah. Like there's so much going on that's so positive. And I don't want this all to feel like this discussion was me just sort of saying, oh my God, the entire country's gone to hell because amazing things are happening. When you balance it, when you weigh the scales, when you look at this right now, like what are your feelings? Are you optimistic? I'm not an optimist by nature, but I'm no more pessimistic than I ever have been. Um, I mean, I'm kind of a bit of a Cassandra, really. 
oh, that's going to go horribly wrong. And it tends to go horribly wrong. But having said that, I, you know, I don't think things are any more hopeless than they've always been. Um, and <laughs> I think the fact that building physics and the climate emergency generally are finding their way into policymaking. I think we're now at a phase where everyone talks the talk and it's just starting to get to the phase where people are actually starting to wonder what that actually means. So, for example, I met some people from from an insurance company a few weeks ago and they what they do is they insure the investment that financial uh, organizations want to make into the retrofit of social housing so what they do is they take account of building physics they're really gend up on damp risk and indoor air quality it was actually at a ventilation event that i met them and construction quality so if uh, their client who might be a insurance a pension company say and they advertise their pension fund as socially green and, you know, socially uh, beneficial and green. And so the people who pay into the pension fund are expecting the pension company to invest in that sort of way. So the pension company thinks, oh, I, we could invest, we could lend some money to a landlord who can then meet their targets for um, building some new homes and retrofitting some homes. Because, you know, landlords often borrow money, social landlords, and then pay it back to, from the rents. So what they do is they go alongside the landlord and the contractor and the designer, check what they're doing and kind of guarantee that that it is actually going to work to the best of their ability because by doing that, they reduce the risk that the money will go bad and it'll turn out they've got to, I don't know, rip off all the insulation because it's all gone wet and mouldy or something. So they're taking account of proper construction in order to protect the money and I think it's things like that to gradually starting to appear where you know so many of the things that go wrong end up costing people a fortune I mean right. you know obviously remediating down from mold costs an absolute fortune treating children with scarlet fever in hospital costs an absolute fortune sending an ambulance to someone whose heart is slowing down because they've got hypothermia costs a fortune so, you know, there are those national calculations. And then for the actual, you know, with the what they call the asset, if that goes wrong, because it's not working properly, because people haven't paid heat to physics and construction, that costs a fortune too. And people are starting to see in the financial sector that there you can get it right first time if you know what you're doing. So I guess that may be weirdly, that is where I would look for a bit of hope because you know, they're not doing it because they care. They're doing it because they kind of have to, because their customers care and they don't want to lose money. So maybe. <laughs> the American analogy is where, like in the state of Florida, like the very conservative Republican governor makes it illegal for finance companies to take ESG into account 
because they should only be thinking about their return on investment and not thinking about environmental or social that's or a, governments. That's an oxymoron, isn't it? Yes. And <laughs> or just the, a moron, maybe. <laughs> yes. At the same time, the insurance companies are saying, um, this is Florida and you're all going to be underwater and we're not insuring you against hurricanes anymore. Yeah. And indeed. so at some point, people have to get this together. It all connects. Yeah, indeed it does. Indeed and it speaking does. of connecting, this has just been lovely to talk to you at such length. I've been an admirer of your writing, and this has been eye-opening. I come away thinking more positively, <laughs> even though you're being a Cassandra most of the time. I think <laughs> that we have a positive ending here, and I want to thank you for this. Well, it's been lovely to talk to you, Lloyd. Really, really nice to talk to you. It's it's lovely um, that uh, you wanted to talk to me because it's I've always got more to, to chat on about. So, <laughs> well, we'll do to another have, episode. To have an audience. Yes. <laughs> um. Just before we go, uh, like a producer's note, the articles that were referenced during the course of the conversation will stick into the show notes. Is there anything you have coming out that you want to plug, Kate? Like, should people follow you on LinkedIn? Are you on Twitter? <laughs> I stopped using LinkedIn a while ago. I should probably get back on there. I am on Twitter at Kate underscore Duh. And I, the most recent thing that uh, that I sort of completed and, and I'm, you know, very keen to share is I did a sort of roundup of the benefits of Passive House to the Passive House Trust a couple of years ago. And then since then, I've been working on a kind of, the really, really deep dive into the health benefits of passive house, but a lot of it talks about the health risks of, you know, of the housing that is more typical and, you know, the things that can go wrong. And it's it's very long, but it's got a there's something there for everyone, I guess you could say. It's on the Passive House Trust website. It's quite hard to find. Um and I can I can share a link with you that you can put in the show notes if you like. That'd be great. Cheers. So do you have something to work with here, Dan? Oh, most definitely. Yeah, that was really good. All right. Lovely to see you both. And, yes. Uh, yeah. Cheers, Kate. Cheers. Bye. Right, take care. Bye. Bye.